Welcome back to Resident Reels, podcast where we talk about movies and television with your hosts, Chandler and Adam. Wow, I just sounded like a personality. I'm Adam. That's it. <laughs> yeah, wow. What a concept. It almost sounds like we, uh, you know. I was like, am I hosting The Price is Right or something? Like, this is weird. This is weird. A little weird. All right, Chandler, what have you been up to in the last, let's see, however many days since we've we've recorded i mean it's been it's been a little bit crazy life stuff kind of like getting ready for this small residency in denver trying to get a bunch of housekeeping stuff and like i'm having to figure out how to move the rest of my stuff to a storage unit so that's fun oof yep been there but luckily i've got my sister back there She's doing great with her little baby. I get to hopefully see her for the first time because I left Colorado right before she was born, my niece, and I was just like, dang it, so close. What have you been up to, my friend? Oh, man, I've been on a, so we had like a layoff from work, which like, I feel like layoff in our industry kind of means something different than usual. It's like a planned like week of no shows. It wasn't like the show randomly tanked, just to like clarify. (laughs) I was home in Tucson visiting my mom for a little bit. And now I have just gotten back from like a four day vacation in Vegas. And if you hear a little rasp in my voice, it's because we were at one of the nightclubs until like three o'clock in the morning. And we had to get in our Uber at 4.30. We, We got back at around nine and I was asleep until easily 3.30 this afternoon, which is why we're recording at night, listeners, which we do not usually do. It is purely because I decided to have too much fun in Las Vegas, Nevada. So that's fine. We all get to have fun, right? As long as it's safe and we're not being stupid, right? We all deserve fun. No, it was a it was actually a blast. We we had a really, uh, a really good time. So so that was some good lightheartedness before we get into these Real dark movies. Really horrible movies, yeah. So this week, it was Stephen King themed, and we've chosen Pet Cemetery, the 1989 version, to be specific, and then uh, Apt Pupil from 1998. So that's exciting. Which one do you want to dive into first? I think they're both, like, hard in their own ways, you know? Yeah, I would say let's end darker. So I'll happily start with mine because I think that there are some there are some things I can say about mine that will lighten the mood a little bit. I do have a fun little tidbit to kind of like launch us off. I came across this Stephen King quote that kind of like really encapsulates all his work. And I think it really speaks through with just these two movies as like case studies. And he goes, in every life, you get to a point where you have to deal with something that's inexplicable to you, whether it's the doctor saying you have cancer or a prank phone call. So whether you talk about ghosts or vampires or Nazi war criminals living down the block, we're still talking about the same thing, which is an intrusion of the extraordinary into ordinary life and how we deal with it. What that shows about our character and our interactions with others and the society we live in interests me a lot more than monsters and vampires and ghouls and ghosts. So it's very interesting, that kind of like point of view of why King writes the horror he writes. And I think it really shows in these two movies. So uh, my movie was Pet Cemetery, 1989. So uh, obviously based off of the book from 1983, written by Stephen King. And it was direct, this movie was directed by Mary Lambert. So also, hell yeah, for women in horror movie direction. 
Yeah. So I guess just to get into it, also, I will say like, I am a, a fan feels like too strong of a word to say that I'm like a fan of Stephen King, because I cannot, you know, definitively say that I have like delved into like his work and stuff. Like I only watched the most recent uh, remake of it, like last year. Like I, I am, and I think part of that is like, again, horror thriller stuff is not necessarily what I gravitate towards. And so therefore, you know, but I have like read quotes and things of his that, you know, are about his work or like not his work specifically. And, and I've always like enjoyed his, his prose and things like that. So I actually had to look up why it was called Pet Cemetery, spelled S-E-M-A-T. T-A-R-Y, because I had not read the book. And so if you have also not read the book and were curious as to why it's spelled that way, it's because in the book, the the kids who like find the real cemetery, like spell it S-E-M-A-T-A-R-Y. And so that made a lot more sense to me because like, I just didn't know, you know, Uh, and then it's, it's, it is briefly shown in a clip. I, I think in the in the film as well, but I, I I didn't. I was like, but what is the what is the reason as to why it's even spelled that way? Our our quick synopsis here is there's this family that, of course, because it's always they're moving from a big city to like a suburban area, like small town, like that. So that's always how it goes. And so these people specifically moved from Chicago. They are in uh, a small town in Maine, of course, because that's the classic Stephen King locale. Of course, of course. So they like don't know anybody. And then here comes their new neighbor, um, who's this old guy named Judd. He like takes them. There's this pet cemetery that's behind the house that this family has bought. Um, So he takes them there and like just shows them around. And (laughs) I just immediately out the gate, I was like, wow, this movie is so campy now. Like at the time, I'm sure it was like, not campy at all but like in this lens i am like oh boy like this is this is really setting it up it's got that era of like late 80s early 90s like almost made for tv movie but like had some style and good artistic choices where it's like it's just a little elevated above that but like looking back it feels like oh this is a made for tv vibe i gotcha yeah yeah Exactly, exactly. And so we have the the family, which is Lewis, who's the dad, we have Rachel, who's his wife, Gage, who is their little toddler son, and Ellie, who is their daughter. And that's like, who this this family is comprised of They're the creeds. So then we kind of jump and um, we find out that that Lewis's job is like he works at the University of Maine, basically, like in medicine. And he is working there when there's this like guy who gets brought in and he was in a car accident. He's like super fucked up. It was just like, again, it was um, it was one of those things where it's like, okay, it's a horror movie and then something strange happens. It's like everything's a little strange and then the very strange thing happens. And this guy, uh, his name is Victor, the student who got hit by the car. He dies, but like literally right before he dies, he like tells Lewis and knows his name, like, like, grips, like, grips. He's like warning him basically about this like pet cemetery and it was so and again i just it was just so funny like 
And like, here's the thing that I want to preface by the time I get to the end of this is like, I did not think that this was a funny movie. And I want to, I want to like clarify, like there are some really deep fucking concepts associated with this storyline that are heartbreaking and very, very sad, especially as we get towards the end. It is just watching this 1989 film with a 2023 lens and like everything that we've been able to absorb since it just led to a lot of moments of like oof this was prime cinema back then that's crazy okay obviously that like fucked lewis up because he was like yo what the hell just happened and when he falls asleep that night it, it seems like it's in a dream he like gets visited by victor like in this dream this and he is terrifying like the way that they have him look is he's like he's literally a zombie basically like he just is is absolutely horrifying looking he again like warms him about this like but now we find out like this burial ground that's like beyond the pet cemetery and then this craziness of lewis like wakes up from whatever this like dream visit thing was and his feet are all dirty like he's been out walking in the mud and, and dirt and stuff and so we kind of get this moment of like oh shit like things are things have already gone wrong and we haven't seen them but we're we're discovering in real time that, that this is not good so the meat of this where we where we start to get like our inciting incident ellie their daughter has this cat named church also shout out to my roommates from college because i finally understand why they named their cat church so unfortunately church gets hit by a truck oh because they live next to this country road county road that everyone speeds on like crazy it's fucking terrifying like from the get-go it's just semi-trucks it's always like the same like you know gas or like uh liquid semi-truck just like speeding through and i'm like who the hell would want to live there i'm not uh uh-uh, not nope not my place so there's a family property that I don't know who it was under, but it's it's the generation of my grandfather somewhere in there in a location almost like identical to to this. And when I was a kid, I actually almost got hit by a car flying down that road holding a kitten. So when I saw this, I just immediately had flashbacks to like that. I like I know a road like this, like I like and it's it is terrifying. Stress me out, Adam. You like almost lived a Stephen <laughs> King movie. I know, dude. <laughs> This, like, obviously, like, a child loses their cat. That's um, really sad and depressing. A cute Judd coming back in to the picture, and he's like, oh, so let me actually take you to, like, the real cemetery, which we find out is this Indian burial ground that's, like, beyond the pet cemetery that they had walked through. And he's like, bury the cat. And... This kind of sets up everything that's about to go horribly wrong uh, for the rest of the film because he's basically like saying that if you bury this cat, like it, it will come back to life. And but it's like it's going to be different, but it's a pet. So like whatever, you know, no one needs to like deal with the death of a, of a pet. And Lewis um, like asks if anybody had ever like tried to bury like a human being and i i wrote down the quote uh because judd's response was christ on his throne no and whoever would which i was like damn like 
I see like that. I feel like that was the trigger response of like, of course not like blah, blah, blah. Um, like who, like who would ever do that? And I think it is so much deeper than that because, uh, what this movie like really starts to get into is like grief and like that people will do crazy, crazy things to avoid grief or, or try to like reconcile with grief. And so the, and who would ever, and whoever would seemed just like such a impulse reaction of like, who would, like, who would ever do that? Um, but it was like, the reality is like, a lot of people would probably try to do that. Lewis gets home, um, their home. And then that night church comes back and I'm so sorry, but this cat was crazy looking, um, in terms of (laughs) the way it just showed up. Like, Oh my God. It had like crazy, like glowing eyes. Um, like, like these like golden kind of like glowing eyes. And then it was just like, it was just angry. And it specifically like kept attacking Lewis. Um, and then they also commented that it's like smelled terrible. Like it, it, it's it, like the cat smelled the way that someone would be like, it smells like something died. And it's because the cat did indeed die. This was one of those moments where it was like, damn, clearly Stephen King knew that like cats are smart as hell. Um, because Church also fully like torments Lewis, like not just in a instinctual, I'm going to attack you way in a very like calculated way, because we get this scene of Church dropping like, like Lewis is taking, um, has, he has a bath going and Church like drops this disgusting rat into the bath and i was like oh that is fully like when your cat is angry at you and it walks on a table and it just like paws something off the counter and it goes flying like and that was honestly more horrifying to me than just like the demon cat who randomly attacked i was like oh this cat wants lewis dead like this cat is actually plotting the death of Lewis, which was crazy. Near there, at that point in the movie, to me, it was like, church isn't church. Like, something else possibly has inhabited this cat. Like, it started, like, that tiny little thought, and I'm glad, like, I had that, because as we get further, that kind of, like, grows into what that burial ground is. And and the Indians, Native Americans, are the Mi'kmaq? Yeah, which are a real indigenous tribe uh, from mostly Canada and the Northeast part of the U.S. So it's like, you know, Stephen King does his research, but, you know, it does play on that trope of, like, mysticism. But there's, like, dialogue in the movie that, like, it was ceremonial burial, but, like, it was never... The land became tainted, so they left. So it's not necessarily, like, they're doing, and it, like, kind of plays with that trope of indigenous people and horror which is really interesting. Yeah, making a point to be like, this is not, like, they are not evil, something evil happened, which again, kind of leads to like, is church really still church? No, what, like, what's in church? So then this was actually like, really fucking awful. So the next, the next like, big event that happens in this movie is that their son, their little baby boy, Gage, also gets hit and killed by a truck on that same road that like church did. I think for me, tying directly into what we were just talking about, like the deaths alone, I think are indicative of like whatever tainted 
that land. Like, like it, it, like that statement didn't necessarily just apply to like that cemetery and that uses like the place you are in is bad. There are bad things. And so then they're, you know, this toddler gets murdered. Which is so beautifully like shot and film and edited together because it's heartbreaking, but like you feel the intensity of it about to happen. Like you know it's gonna happen and you don't want it to happen. But yet, like they still to like watching this like 30, 40 year old movie, like you still feel like the intensity and just like you get freaked out and you like you don't want it to happen. You think there's hope that it won't happen, but it inevitably happens and it's heart wrenching. It was helpless. Like we we were helpless watching it, which I love being made to like feel intensely in those ways by media. Like I, I love when something can like do that to me. And so I really, I really, as fucked up as it is, uh, enjoyed that scene in particular. Obviously, like you can only imagine because how do they say how old he is specifically? Two, three. Oh, he's younger. Okay. They just have an older looking actor i suppose but they also picked i'm sorry the cutest child in the world (laughs) to play gage he is adorable which only added to how horrible everything with this character is and the actress who plays rachel the mom oh my god just the the way that she was going through that heartbreak and like just that overwhelmed like loss of a child's grief how do you ever get like how do you ever get past that like and and i mean speaking from first party like witness removed ish like my my dad lost two kids before i was born and like that that is something i mean he was 83 when he passed and and like that's not something that you ever just like get over you know that was that was on my dad to the day he died like and the fact that like uh, I just feel like this actress did such a such a good job of like that that initial shock that doesn't just end at some point like you know so I was actually reading that this scene was controversial in in some ways which I think is a, a interesting take on like censorship um, which maybe we can we can talk about for a second so they have a wake for for Gage and he's there's this like little child coffin which like. Oh my god! Uh, seeing just like a, a child-sized coffin alone is enough to like really you know fuck you up. Rachel's dad and Lewis like start to get into it, and you know we we learn that like Rachel's dad like never liked Lewis, like already kind of had like off-putting feelings about him and everything. Fully blames him for for everything with Gage, like punched it into Lewis like at this wake was just constantly uh, alluding and, and saying outright and things that it was his fault um, that that Gage died and Lewis winds up punching uh, her dad like this fight breaks out and the coffin gets knocked over and there is a shot of like Gage's hand kind of like coming out of the coffin and apparently the audience response to that moment was very very split which i think is so interesting there there were like two kind of schools of thought which was like it it added to what 
they wanted their audiences to feel, which was uncomfortable, which was this like off-putting grief, all of that, all of those heavy things that surround death and then add on to the fact that we're talking about a child. And then the other kind of camp was saying like that, that isn't a visual that people should have to see, whether it's like real or fake. Um, and, and like the sensitivity of death surrounding children and things like that. I don't necessarily have strong feelings one way or the other, but I do think that that for me, that was still a moment that was like very evocative. Absolutely. Like just going back to that, like this is a place where bad things happen. And to me, it was a foreshadowing of Lewis kind of like disturbing his son's body and disturbing his son's peace in a non you know, mystic Indian burial ground way in a very like this could happen in real life because tensions are high and humans feel emotions and people just don't think clearly when grief is involved. And I, and so for that reason, I liked that scene in there, but I can absolutely understand how, you know, there's a school of thought that like, that is something that shouldn't necessarily be expanded upon if it isn't incredibly important to the narrative and i would argue against those people that like it is important because like these people are reacting to trauma and grief in this very outlandish way without you know realizing the situation the place that they're in and how much they're committing to their emotions without processing them right and i feel like the the only way you could like get away with some of that without without it being like exploitative like having deaths of children and stuff because it is a common thing in a lot of Stephen King work is deaths of children in a lot of his work I think it's usually done when it's adapted to film at least I think it's usually well done because there's there's care and consideration being taken and it's not exploitative like it's purposeful because of the impact this character will have on others or the situation and it's i mean when i also watched that scene it was i was just like baffled at like you're taking you have the audacity to physically get in a brawl with your son-in-law when like this was a crazy accident happenstance because honestly like that that place like you said is corrupted it, it is home of just terrible, bad things happening. But like, I'm also sitting there being like, I also can tell it was a doll's hand, but that's just me and my keen film eye. You sure, know? <laughs> sure. I mean, absolutely. Yes, without a doubt. But I think horror is like, is the perfect place to push those boundaries and buttons and emotions by having good storytellers like Mary Lambert. Like she clearly knew what she was doing and expressing this and like props to her because like she comes from like music video background i was reading up on her which is like she she did madonna's a few madonna music videos and stuff like that it's crazy but we'll get into that later for more trivia that is so random this is her first feature yeah this is her first feature hell yeah that's cool good for her because this slapped obviously we have a grief-stricken dad and he starts toying with the idea of very engaged in the, the the burial ground. Judd kind of tries to intervene and be like, no, 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 like we're not going to do this. And then we find out that he lied before when he said that nobody ever tried to like bury a person because then he starts to go into this story 
um, about a dad who like lost his son and he put him in the burial ground. And like when the son came back, he was like a, a horrifying version of himself and like terrorizing uh, the, the, all of like the town and the people who lived there. And that Judd was involved with trying to like burn down the house with this like reanimated sun corpse in the house. But the son had turned on his dad who brought him back to life and like attacked him. And so they both wound up dying in the fire. One of the, one of the critiques that I saw about this movie <laughs> was that it treated the audience as if they were not going to put any of the pieces together themselves was kind of like what the statement had said. And I can see how like in this moment of like, let me tell you about this one time this has happened before and how this went, I can absolutely see because I didn't find this necessarily. And I don't know how it was in the book, but I, at least in the film, I did not find it like unnecessary parts. However, I think there is something to be said that Lewis was told outright what was going to happen. And he still went through with it. And, and I think that, that that character development is a justifiable choice to, to have something like that. It's less about the audience and it's more about the characters. Yeah, that's the same argument I would make about that too. Because from the book, there's a lot in this book. So adapting this to like, this was like only like 90 minutes-ish, right? Maybe it was a little longer than that. Like it's, it's a 400 page book. And jam packing it into that with like the amount of baggage and trauma like these characters have. I, I did make a note like as because I think this first like flashback story was like the first of a few that we started getting because we learned that Rachel has had has this traumatic experience as a kid with her uh, very sick sister that she is traumatized because she feels like she murdered her and like arguably maybe that's true or not but she was a child left alone with her very sick sister when she should have had a nurse to take care of it and her parents were just neglectful right and that's that's a very tough gross inside feeling like i don't i don't know how to make anyone feel better with that kind of trauma baggage right because that's just that is so many things wrong that is literally go to therapy for the rest of your life like good luck with judd's kind of story he's he's putting in perspective of like we've done this before and it we we opened a door that couldn't be closed and it's very very dark in that sense um and he has the famous quote of sometimes dead is better which is the quote from this movie that is everywhere whether it's memed a lot or everything but it's from this sometimes dead is better which is a really interesting conceptual thing because i think that's also a lot from king speaking about how you just need to work through grief and trauma instead of you know trying to grasp at uh regret of the situation yeah and i would say too that um even in the case of sometimes dead is better quote relates directly to Zelda. Uh, that's, that's Rachel's sister as well of like someone who is incredibly sick and dying. And like, yes, the situation, the circumstances of neglect and everything there did not help 
but that was absolutely a situation of dead was better than suffering, even in, in that sense. Rachel just dips. I think that Rachel choosing to leave was also a very, like, I think that's what I like is about this movie is that Lewis and Rachel, for me, actually have very clear just characters. They just have very clear characters. They're very layered and nuanced, and I can see the motivations behind every choice that's made for them. Like, everything seemed like it had a reason, which was very enjoyable to, like, watch that. They weren't, like, you know, made to, like, be immediately problematic or anything. Like, they were just people with, like, complex problems like we all do, which is really refreshing. Rachel choosing to, like, go visit her parents to, like, going back to, to Chicago, like, I, I totally understand because, like, it's like she wanted to be by something familiar and not in that town where she would be reminded of her son's death every day. Rachel does ask Lewis to go with her because she's taking Ellie. That was, like, decided. And Lewis basically is like, no, I'm... I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go. And I think that that fight does set us up for between Lewis and her dad does kind of set us up for that declined invitation, which completely makes sense. I mean, and while they are gone, as a surprise to nobody, Lewis heads to the cemetery and buries Gage. He makes that choice, but he actually has to go like get Gage's body from the cemetery where it was buried, which again, it's like round two of him disturbing his son's peace and then victor comes back as like this like ghostly form at the cemetery where lewis goes to get gage and he's like do not do this like you like like do not touch your your kid leave him here like like do not bring him back that was kind of our our i don't know first like non-dream mystical sort of thing that we have happen and i was like and of course we're in a graveyard so like sure sure like makes sense that that whole graveyard scene was so it was intense for me because watching it i'm seeing this man who's gripping with so much grief of losing his child that he's blaming himself for because he and he and judd have previously gotten conversations because like judd felt very guilty because he started blaming himself and he's like no this is all me like i you did that's ridiculous you did nothing wrong i'm the one at fault here i'm going to fix this which is very silly of lewis because he's been warned by a ghost multiple times now and that graveyard sequence is just intense because it's also hard for him to dig up his own son's grave essentially grave rob which is really weird to think about. He almost gets caught, but he's wishing he did, but is also relieved he didn't. And it's like this very interesting conflict of character. It was kind of giving a reverse Yorick scene in Hamlet, which I, th I thought was fascinating. And I would love to know if there was any inspiration there. But I, th but I think even just that, that idea of like, what if we were to just swap these characters' positions and it, it adds like so much depth there, like that hoping he did, glad he didn't, you know, with the getting caught part. Because you can even tell like within him, he's like having that struggle of like, I know, 
I know that this is not the choice I should be making. I know that this is wrong. Like somebody please stop me, but I can't. Like I, I cannot think of any other way to proceed in my life than to do this. Victor is like clearly understanding. Lewis has no intention of, of not doing this. So he decides to go and visit Ellie of all people. And so I was like, oh God, not us traumatizing this girl and tries to tell her that like Lewis was was doing something unthinkable, like unimaginable, really bad. And basically says, which again, I thought that this was such a powerful thing too. Like like Victor's dead. Like he he isn't alive. He has nothing to gain in any way, shape, or form, he is dead. He has ceased his existence. And he he said he like says that he is trying to help Lewis because Lewis tried to save his life. Like he was like when his soul was like leaving his body, detached from his body, like Lewis was still trying to save his life. And he it wasn't even like a payback sort of thing. It was just like a you tried so hard and like I appreciate that. So like I am I am trying to help you. Ellie, Ellie like tries to like communicate this dream to Rachel, this nightmare, I should say, to Rachel. And uh, Rachel finally like figured, because uh, obviously when your kid's like trying to tell you about this horrifying nightmare, but also like, also like dad's fucking up. Like dad, dad's doing something really bad. And like Rachel is like, figures it all out and like figures out who this guy is that like visited her daughter in his dreams. And she is like, Oh, fuck. And so she calls Lewis and can't, like, he doesn't answer, like, can't get to him, right? And so she calls Judd. She's like, Have you seen Lewis? And is like, I am coming back. Like, I am, I am coming back. And Judd is like, Oh, fuck. Like, Judd knows, like, Judd's in on it. And he is like, Do not come back. Did like, do, like, don't come back. But she had, she didn't even hear it because she was like, I'm coming back, like hangs up the phone and like decisions were made. So she, so Judd is now in like, oh shit mode. Meanwhile, Lewis is, while this is happening, he is like taking Gage's body to the burial ground. Victor could not stop him. Gage is in the burial ground and Lewis goes home. And just like when church just like showed up later, Gage comes back later well but but lewis does pass out like full-on passes out from exhaustion all the adrenaline just dropped out the man probably had the biggest drop in blood pressure known to man which is why he doesn't realize that gage comes home and enters and everything okay taking the cutest child in the world and making him a little demonic thing just god i couldn't I was like, this is horrifying. But also I was like, I just want to pinch his cheeks. Like he's just, they they truly, they truly picked such a damn cute baby to play this role. It, it had like Chucky vibes, but it was also haunting at the same time for me. Because it was just, I, it, was, it was a little wacky, but also terrifying because of like the weird mobility he has gained. Because... Yeah, we learn that like he is he is partially possessed by Rachel's sister Zelda because yeah, Rachel starts having these like weird visions when like trying to race back to get to Lewis and like she has this like nightmare when she's like trying to fly back of like Zelda, you know, 
being like, I'm going to come back and get my revenge kind of thing. And it's just like very weird and unsettling. And then it's just like she wakes up on an airplane and then like Victor's just fucking chilling about like this. The sequence that happens of this back and forth of what Gage, the newly uh, risen from the grave Gage is doing compared to Rachel's journey back to try and like figure out what the hell is going on. It's just such a dichotomy because it's like very comical journey but very like weird unsettling possession happening and it just cuts back and forth it's it's so interesting the choice for that and yet and i again i think if i was watching it in in the time period i wouldn't have found it like comedic necessarily like but watching it now, it just made me like chuckle every time we got to Rachel trying to get back because <laughs> I was like, damn, the realities of travel. Like, <laughs> and like Victor's like doing ghostly things to help her. We're just like, I'm gonna hold this door. Uh, uh, uh. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, Gage gets into the house and he takes one of the scalpels from his dad's like bag. And because he like goes up in his room fully, then Gage makes his little way over to Judd's house and murders Judd while Church is there, like watching, which also was just really interesting. And it just it made me have like the logistics. I had a lot of logistics questions. I was like, how did Zelda wind up in this little three-year-old's body when she like didn't have anything to do with like that cemetery and like and then i was also like wait does this also mean that she's like a part of the cats or like <laughs> chandler's just like dismissively waving it like don't ask That's, these questions we don't ask these stephen king questions because he'll be like was it terrifying that's all that matters you know because it's supposed to be unexplainable inexplicable craziness right and like i think that's it's supposed to add into like the terror factor of it of the unsettling yeah he stabs judd like slices him and then literally bites his throat out and that's how he kills judd well it's a very specific slice too just the achilles slice and that's always unsettling to me because it it reminds me of this old gymnastics injury because i was a gymnast for a good portion of my early life i don't think i ever knew this about you oh yeah that's that was the thing i did it for like a good 10 years i think i did it for like 10 years because i dropped out in high school wait that's crazy so i was a kid i was like maybe like eight or nine or something like that and it was like this like one of these summer camps kind of thing where it's like you're there for like a week doing this like like it was like this like strengthening exercise but using the rings kind of thing and so i would be in this like l pike position and you're supposed to just go until like you you let go kind of thing because you couldn't hold on anymore so i drop and then my heel because i didn't realize how close this kid was to me because i'm also a kid right my heel gets into the bottom of his jaw and pierces through my heel kind of thing. And it, I I don't remember the pain. I just remember like the imagery of it because it was just terrifying. Anything that deals with Achilles and heels and stuff like that forever, like haven't like irk for me. It's weird. I'm just actually in shock. That's insane. And I'm glad that it was not a larger injury 
I also don't think I can get that imagery out of my head ever because my imagination is probably making it way worse than like had I actually seen it. But that's insane. Thank yeah. you for sharing. You're welcome. I, <laughs> it's horror month. I get to share some scary stories, right? We learned that I almost got flattened by a truck holding a kitten and Chandler's whole foot wound up skewered on some kid's teeth. So Lewis is still passed out, like through all of this, still passed out. Rachel gets home. So Lewis has continued to be passed out through Rachel coming home when she gets home, she basically starts to hear things that remind her of like Zelda, uh, like calling her name and stuff. And then she hears Gage laugh. So this is a, kind of that thing of like, okay, it's Gage's body, but like Zelda definitely is in there. And that's how we're kind of able to get both of these kind of characters back. That obviously like got got her kind of like freaked out. So she like goes to find Judd and goes to like Judd's house and Gage is upstairs in a bedroom and she she finds him. Like she finds Gage upstairs. He he in his like adorable, cute little kid voice is like, I brought you something. And then like pulls out Lewis's scalpel. And I think that's the, the that dichotomy of like adorable cuteness to like just evil is like oh there's just something so funky about it like when it's done right she just like hugs him because what like nothing about this makes sense nothing about this makes sense you have a woman who's are like still in shock has never recovered from the shock of losing gage she doesn't give a fuck he pulls out a scalpel and like hugs him and then he just murders her because it's this is Zelda getting her revenge that she like warned about in these like flashes and visions and stuff. Now Lewis wakes up, literally sleeps through Judd's murder, sleeps through his wife's murder. Also, the the way he wakes up is crazy because he like flips out of bed and like I had to rewatch that scene multiple times because I couldn't believe my eyes that like he full blown headbutts near his eye the bedside table and i'm just like ow was that real like yeah true i didn't even think to see if it was like one of those um like we talked about last week like what's his face actually got thrown through the door i feel like that's how i wake up in the morning is like that startled like start that's why my girlfriend made me change my alarm i think (laughs) (laughs) she was like you wake up in a panic every morning we're not doing this anymore And he sees that his like, he notices like they make a point of putting a shot of like that bag of his is open and his scalpel is like missing. Like that is included in the, the, the videography. And then he gets a call and it's Gage and he says like, come play with me, daddy haunting this like kid too is like, oh yeah, like I played with Judd and I played with mom and it was so much fun. And like, now we're going to play together. There's something just scary about demon children. I like inherently it could be a horrible movie and like demon children are still going to like kind of freak me out. And so Lewis knows like Lewis is like, I, I fucked up. I need to like correct these mistakes. He like prepares basically to go confront Gage and he's, he puts, I think it was three morphine shots 
that he like like he draws up like these syringes of like morphine that was just another thing where i was just like how do how do we know that morphine's gonna like solve the problem but like i guess we should trust him because he's a doctor and i don't know he knows things i don't i guess and so he goes to judd's house of course he like church catches him on the way he so he like writes wrong number one because he takes out this like raw piece of like meat and um that's how he like gets church to like kind of be distracted and then he injects church with one of these morphine shots and like kills him so then he goes into judd's judd's house he starts like looking around and gage is kind of like taunting him like the whole time like it's very clear like that this is like a game and again that adds into like the child playfulness which is horrifying lewis is when he's walking around the house rachel's corpse like drops down from like above like the the like attic area and she's like she's like being hung by her neck in that distraction like gauge attacks basically lewis manages to get the upper hand and he stabs a needle into the side of gauge's neck and like injects him with the morphine and i was just like oof like that alone like you the 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 guilt of of feeling like you're the reason your son died the first time and then bringing him back to life to inevitably kill him actually kill him yourself with your hands the second time is unfathomable then like lewis like puts was it gasoline i guess just like gasoline like around the the house sets it on fire but not before taking rachel's corpse out of the house so he burns the house with like judd and and gage but removes rachel's body which immediately i was like i was skeptical because i was like none of this is good none of this is good i think you should have kept rachel's body in the fire and burned it meanwhile uh victor is there and he's just watching basically like everything he 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 tells lewis like he's like i'm i'm sorry like he expresses genuine like sympathy and in the same breath is like do not bury rachel in that cemetery it was just that moment as an audience member where you just go <sighs> like you just like sigh because lewis's response is just a further slip into depression and grief of he starts coming up with these excuses of like well i i I buried gage you know in the normal cemetery and like waited too long and i had to like exude his body and then like go bury him so like this this will be different this will this will work because rachel just died he literally walks through victor and victor just like disappears yelling basically and that was a very like clear representation of like anything that could have like there were choices there was I, to me victor was kind of like a a potential grasp at redemption throughout the whole film like as long as victor was there it felt like lewis could turn things around and so then for that moment to be like lewis actively being the thing that dissipated what could have saved him and that going away i thought was a very powerful moment Lewis just gives in to his irrational emotional thinking because he just he can't deal with this loss and dealing with the grief of it. He just he's unwilling 
to deal with that. And I think that speaks volumes of what, you know, like the point of this movie is. So he's home. He's playing, Lewis is home. He's, he's playing cards, he's playing solitaire, which again, like, damn iconic. Just you're alone, solitaire. That's such like a, a, a sad, alone old man trope. Like not saying in real life, just like in movies a lot of the times. Midnight strikes and here comes Rachel. Same thing. Like just like Gage was calling like, like daddy come play with me. And he was like giggling like for Rachel and stuff like, you just hear like darling, like kind of like calling to Lewis. I like that alone that I don't like just that, that scared me. That like actually that got to me a little bit. He is like so excited. They like hug and they're like kissing and, but her face is, ugh, oh my God. It, it's, I can't even like, it's just disgusting. And she's like, there's like liquid oozing out of her like brain it was just really really bad like she didn't look she looked like a zombie i'm gonna throw up okay it was just because they kissed and while that's happening she reaches for a knife stabs him and lewis like is screaming and that's the end of the film like literally we get like rachel stabs him scream blackout like and then like he's kind of still screaming over the blackout and it's like it ended exactly the way you realize it's going to end but it does not make it any less impactful that is my movie as someone who knows about stephen king but does not necessarily deep dive into stephen king i really really liked this film i would be interested actually which says a lot for me because again how many times do i have to reiterate i'm not a horror person but i'd be very interested to watch the uh what was it the 2019 film that came out um just to compare just just to see what was what was up. But d- did you know that there's a sequel to this called Pet Cemetery 2? I did know that. I I saw that there was a sequel. I did not look up any of the like reception or if it's actually like worth watching because since it is based on a book, this was 400 pages of that book crammed into one movie, so everything post this movie would just have to be like new content, right? I think they're trying to take a page out of the Children of the Corn because I think that's also a Stephen King work and that spawned in like seven movies or whatever. So they're like, what if we could do that with Pet Cemetery? even though like the source material ends after the first movie. So yeah, yeah, it's from what I remember, it's not great. Great. Uh, have you seen this movie before out of curiosity? I have not actually. So part of the reason I picked it was actually, if you remember, the year that you and I met, uh, we were working with another gentleman who became obsessed with the song Pet Cemetery and played it for every single sound check. So I just remember there was huge hype around that movie. So when you pitched this theme, I didn't want to be basic and pick it because I had seen that movie and I actually really, really liked it. Um, And so I took this as an opportunity to watch something new but i also didn't want to watch the newest film i wanted to watch like the the original one i i dig it i dig it it's it holds up so well and it's very interesting that it does i i read that guillermo del toro wants to make his own version of this and he's like even like i understand it's already been remade twice but it it's one of those books that he read as a kid and it terrified him but then even rereading it as an adult and understanding it further 
terrifies him even more as a father to him hands down the the final line in the book is the most terrifying thing he's ever read because it's in the book it just ends with hearing footsteps and a raspy Rachel voice saying darling and it just ends so it is kind of like more haunting in the book but like I can understand the very cool shot ending shot of the movie with her holding the knife I would argue though that the fact that they did decide to like show the ending in the movie I would say isn't is an additional point to those people who said that like the movie doesn't leave the audience to like piece things together themselves because I, I do think it would have been incredibly haunting to just leave it on her like calling darling and the audience being like damn now we just kind of have to exist in this dread of knowing what happened but not actually not actually truly knowing i guess because we didn't see it but instead they did just like fully give it to us oh also i don't know if you saw the stephen king cameo so i knew that he had a cameo in it before going into the movie because when you look up the movie it literally the first thing you see is is stephen king's face as like the listed like first character um so and and he's uh he's he plays a minister in the film. He's on screen for like ten seconds, if that, you know. Yeah, it literally goes Stephen King, and then the guy who plays Lewis, and the kid who played Gage. But like the the other fun little trivia I've got is the Pet Cemetery song by the Ramones at the end. It feels so not part of it, but like it's whatever. It's a late eighties movie. You're gonna have a weird song be in the credits anyways you know especially if it's horror it doesn't matter but i did read like the ramones wrote that because the director she was friends with the ramones so she just asked a favor to be like hey could you write a song for my first movie for the credits and they're like sure whatever and they just did it oh no way that's actually dope her as a music video director is kind of baller because I think she did like did the music video for Like a Prayer by Madonna, a couple of music videos for Motley Crue, Whitney Houston, Mariah Carey, Lionel Richie. Oh, she did both Like a Prayer and Like a Virgin for Madonna. So there you go. And Material Girl. So yeah, there you go. Like clearly has a really cool aesthetic and then to be doing a feature film and it being a Stephen King adaptation is very interesting. All right. Well, if you don't have anything else to say about Pet Cemetery, I would love to talk about your film. Um, I think for me, out of these two movies, yours, absolutely. Just taking the word scare as like what everything that encompasses scared me the most, like very bad. I think for me, like I have truly discovered i enjoy psychological thrillers significantly more than like horror slasher in very different ways like horror slasher gets me super scared in the moment like i get anxious like in the moment and psychological thrillers are like i will experience existential dread for days after so Chandler, why don't you tell us about about your film yeah so so i chose apt pupil i'd never actually seen it and i haven't read the source material either so like it was a i didn't know this honestly existed until about a couple years ago and i've been scared to watch it especially like i mean arguably in the current you know atmosphere in the u.s right now i mean it was made in 98 and it's based it's set in the year 1984 so it's it's a very different cultural time 
that it's set in specifically because i think stephen king wrote this in like 82 83 the book and so the film was adapted a few years after that it was in some production hell for a little bit because they're like not getting directors on board and then brian singer came in and came to direct it which is kind of crazy that this is a brian singer film that like i know from like x-men yeah i was scared because of the material of diving into nazis and the holocaust and kind of psychopathic natures of that and how that kind of intermingles and it's it's a very tough subject to dig through stellar cast and then i didn't realize until researching it that this movie also has a bit of controversy due to the death of one of the main actors post filming this from an overdose in drugs i think as a kid uh, I didn't dive into it because that was just like, that's too much already to add on top. And that's, it's just really sad. And I just wanted to acknowledge that because he, he is like a teenager. And um, from the brief things I read, he was like a teenager with a bunch of adults at parties with alcohol, drugs and stuff like that. And there there's clearly an issue in hot, especially at that time. And like, are you really still now that like is getting more, of a spotlight, which is really good, of how Hollywood treats child actors and how better care needs to be had. Yeah, so this movie does have a lot of baggage to it in that sense as well. Because, you know, this this teenage actor who's who's he's playing a teenager, but he's like in his early twenties, is kind of doing a lot of method acting of this very arguably psychopathic character. But like stellar cast, like Ian McKellen is one of the leads he oh my god dude his performance i like my exposure to him has always been like the happy-go-lucky kind of like fun characters and this just you just you know it's a good actor when it's like you all of your predisposition is like the opposite of what they typically are and then you see them do something you've never seen and your first thought isn't like oh, I see why they only do the other, like they predominantly do X, Y, Z. Like this just made me go, he blew me away. He blew me away in a, in a, in a, in so many ways. So I'm not going to do as much of a synopsis. I want to try a thing with this one because this movie just has a lot of deep moments. Like we'll hit the plot points and stuff with this because I think we'll just get there through conversation anyways. But I just want to like dive into these characters and the situation because it's very like, it's very much a long period of time because there's a lot of like uh intertitles of like a month goes by a couple months go by and it's just this relationship between this teenager todd who is this like straight a student really smart he's like a 16 year old graduating from high school early kind of smart who discovers that one of his neighbors down the street turns out to be a nazi war criminal in hiding who's played by Ian McKellen. It's it's less clear very early on, but about like a quarter of the way through the movie, you kind of realize like Todd is not an okay individual. He has an overactive mind and it's clear that he needs extra stim- stimulation of some sort. And it kind of like takes on that kind of like psychopathic tendencies. And so it's really, I mean, it's hard not to compare to a lot of 
like, you know, some of the most glorified of psychopaths, which are like serial killers and stuff like that, which is really interesting reading uh, comments by Brian Singer that like Todd, he was not manipulated by this Nazi in hiding. He clearly sought this out because he was bored. And if he didn't have this, he might have done something worse. And I think Brian Singer gives like the example of like raping someone, hurting someone, this really a uh, toxic relationship he forces between him and Dusander, the the Nazi war criminal in hiding, really like amplifies in a very manipulative, toxic way what he wants. It's a very hard subject matter to talk about, but I think. It's important. But essentially, essentially, Todd, he's bored in school and they just finished like the unit on the Holocaust kind of thing. He's aced the test, whatever. Um, He's riding home on the bus after being at the library to do a little more additional research on the Holocaust because it's the 80s. And so we're like 40 years, we're like a generation removed from uh, World War II and the Holocaust. And so... I think there's a lot of commentary on how the youth of the next generation are starting to have this less connection to the Holocaust. And it's like really interesting to see see that in a 2023 lens and how arguably people born within the 21st century can't even conceptualize what the Holocaust was, which is very interesting that like this movie can still resonate very now in that perspective and i think you know brian singer makes this very almost timeless in that sense even though it is definitively set in 1984 so todd is on the bus and he sees that this man looks like this officer who was a commandant in both the concentration camps of Patton and Auschwitz, I believe is what it was. And so he ends up doing a bunch of investigating and like, apparently we don't get to see any of this. Essentially, we just get a month goes by and he confronts Dusander, who goes by his fake name of Arthur Denker. And apparently he's gotten fingerprints and stuff because it's very interesting that like they dive into a little bit of how to prove someone's a Nazi war criminal is like you need like eight perfect matches of fingerprints because photographic evidence is not enough, especially the further time you get from it, because this is like 40 years later. And so like a lot of these officers are in their like 60s, 70s, 80s. And so he confronts him, but in a sense of blackmailing him because he wants to know, he wants to know everything that happened from his side. It's like this sick fascination. Exactly the word I would use. Todd is literally deranged. Like he he wants the gruesome, unfathomable details for his own pleasure. And it begins to show because after he starts hearing stories from Dusander, because Dusander, he's stuck in this very uncomfortable situation where it's like it's clearly a man who has been able to hide for so long, he's kind of been able to deal with the trauma of the atrocities he committed. Not saying like he's deserving of forgiveness because 
the atrocities he committed are grave atrocities of killing thousands and thousands of people. So Dusander's clearly like been able to be in hiding long enough to kind of push that past away from him. And now he's got some kid who's making him essentially relive it. And I think it's really interesting that the film plays with almost having you feel sympathy, but then making you feel bad about having sympathy if you feel it. Because I can also see a lot of viewers never having that sympathy, and that's completely fair, because these people who served the Nazi party in World War II and committed such terrible acts against humanity don't deserve any sympathy, just hands down. I'm going to stand on that soapbox and I don't care if you don't like it. Like that, that's just the truth. And like, I think, I think something that was important to point out his character specifically as well is like you mentioned, he was an officer because they, they specifically had a German Nazi like title um, that I, that I looked up and, and essentially it was, a, it was equivalent to a Lieutenant Colonel. So it wasn't even just like, he wasn't one of the non thinkers. He was somebody like making calls throughout everything and giving orders yeah i think when i watched it like i struggle because part like part of the reason i like movies so much is like i am somebody who can just get invested in like emotion very easily they did a very the film team did a very good job of doing this like cat and mouse with the audience of like make you feel a little sympathy here it's just some poor old man and then like immediately reminding you that this is a horrific human being and like just kind of going back and forth on that throughout the whole movie and like and because we you know objectively like i can say i don't feel bad for him like i i will also stand on that soapbox with you like fuck nazis past present future whatever the fuck you want to call yourself you're still a fucking nazi if you have those beliefs at the same time watching the movie i i i like my emotions were still toyed with at the same time. I think it was a well done by especially Brian Singer of knowing how to use the source material well, but also change it so it had a better impact through film. Because um, Todd has a lot of these like hallucinations or vivid dreams and stuff like that of like transporting himself back to concentration camps and imagining these deaths of Jews and other people who were in gas chambers and et cetera. And it's like this like really sick fascination because uh, one of the biggest scenes that stood out to me was he's he's in the showers after like gym class or whatever. All of a sudden, it shifts from him taking a shower with his classmates to him showering with a bunch of malnourished Jews in a concentration camp. And it like it's it's brilliant because like visually it shifts into this like bluer haunting color palette and like he loses all track of time and this becomes a common thing when he has these like hallucinations or dr- vivid dreams. He like loses hours of time and that like really shows that his mind is unhinged. I I think I struggle a lot with the Holocaust and, and specifically Holocaust imagery. We actually, we like, I have like a group of friends. This is going to sound like crazy, but we had in middle school in our um, like advanced reading class, we had this thing called the Holocaust Project. And I absolutely advocate, we'll also stand on this soapbox, that 
the Holocaust should be talked about and taught in school. Like, absolutely. Like, we should all be made very aware of, of what that was and in, in the severity that it was as well. Um, I think the thing that was difficult was, I think what was being fed to us was maybe a little bit above our age group at that time because we were in the sixth grade. So imagine we're like 11. You absolutely have a grasp of like right and wrong, but you're also still very much a child for six months, which it was not supposed to be that long of a project. But our teacher kept being like unhappy with like products essentially of the presentations from the groups. And so we all had to redo them three times. I wound up being a six month project. And so for six months of our lives of being 11 and 12, we were looking at photos of real people from the Holocaust. Like we were reading about in detail, like the science experiments that were done and reading like in detail accounts of like Holocaust survivors and things. And and there there was a lot of content in that that I was so not mentally developed enough to like process as anything other than traumatizing to have even just that and then like watch this film about a a hypothetical fake character child who is like obsessed in a in a really sick way was so difficult to swallow it's very interesting because i don't know how much of like specifically the dialogue throughout the movie is like straight from stephen king or not but it's so accurate to like things said and the nuremberg trials because uh i remember getting to like the end of just being this like weird todd comes over to hear stories part of the relationship that he and Dusander have. Dusander is having trouble coming to grips with it, and he's clearly an alcoholic, and he's becoming much more so, having to relive these memories and recount them to this 16-year-old. There's just this dialogue at the end of a story, because Todd asked, I don't remember what the question was specifically, along the lines of, like, why didn't you stop no, you're doing something bad. And he replies with, a door had been opened that couldn't be shut. It is of that mentality of a lot of the people who served in the Nazi party and it's a lot of the excuses, for lack of a better word, of these officers in their defense of, I was following orders. We we already went too far. Like, how could we stop and get rid of our sins from the atrocities we've already committed? And then it, it gets very haunting because Dusander essentially turns the table and it becomes this like cat and mouse game and they switch sides of being cat and mouse between Todd and Dusander because being forced back into being a Nazi officer because Todd like forces him to dress up in a uniform to march and that scene was haunting alone because Todd's like, I can blackmail you at any point you're going to do what I say. And Todd has this like whole power high and, and Dusander gets lost in the muscle memory and the psychological memory of being a Nazi officer. And it, and you feel it. You, you as an, as the audience get overwhelmed in that moment too, because it's like, it's gone too far. 
and Todd's lost control of the situation. And I feel like that's the turning point in the movie where Dusander realizes like he can also take control of the situation. He can be just as manipulative back. And that's just purely from his own personal history of being a horrible human being. Dusander as well says to Todd, like, boy, you're playing with fire. And that was just like, that's truly the entirety thing of, of it of it here is like Todd entered into this thinking that he was going to be on this power trip and have this power. It winds up blowing up in his face, really, because he forces a Nazi officer back into what that level of power trip was. Yeah. And so this this cat and mouse game starts and like we find out that Todd's not been doing well in school because of this obsession with Dusander. He's trying to hide his failings from his parents. Dusander essentially kind of like becomes his new best friend in this like very sick and twisted manipulative way. And so Dusander then helps him because he sees that sees this as an opportunity to have an upper hand against Todd. When even says like get your grades up or or I'm going to like tell your parents about like your weird fascination you have with Nazi stuff. And this back and forth cat and mouse game kind of like really starts to amplify. And it's so well scored throughout because I also read that the editor for this film was also the composer. And so it's very interesting. There's a lot of merriment to that. And he, uh, I read something like he had a difficult time trying because as an editor you sometimes throw in like random pieces of like pop culture music to try and get the vibe of the scene just to be like this is the vibe i know we're gonna have original music composed but this is like the rough edit of this scene or sequence kind of thing and he was having a hard time trying to find the right music because nothing seemed to fit because it's such a unique story of this back and forth cat and mouse manipulation of these two truly horribly corrupt people, and one of them being a child, which is even weirder to think about. So Dusander then pretends to be Todd's grandfather and essentially is like, you're going to get your grades up, or yeah, everyone's going to know. And he flips essentially the blackmail back on Todd, being like, you've spent how long getting to know me and making me tell you about my past that when they catch me I'm just going to be like you knew for six months hell even a year your name is going to be tarnished and no one's going to want to associate with you because you chose not to turn me in for a year after knowing who I am and what I've done and so this like very twisted power fight happens between the two of them and it's like it's very unique because it's it's so stereotypical american education system in this that like when they see the guidance counselor who is played by david schwimmer ross from friends which is very interesting he makes the the weird underhanded deal that like oh i can convince your teachers to like knock off those grades if you get all a's in all your classes kind of thing and it's just like that preferential treatment of, of students and education. And I'm like, that's just so American education system. And it's just so, I hate it. It's toxic. And like, you know, Todd does turn it around and it's it's a bit of hell for him because he has three weeks to redo a whole semester's worth of work or whatever. But like, he has no other choice. 
and like during this time, like Do Sanders falls back more into this Nazism of his past. He like starts dressing in the uniform that Todd got him when he's alone. And then there's this very dark scene with the cat, which is like, hey, great, we got cats in both of these movies, Adam. So Do Sanders been drinking out on the patio on this this stray cat which is clearly, which we find out through just, you know, subtlety in the cinematography, is a neighbor cat that got lost. He ends up, like, taking the cat inside, and you think, like, maybe he's got a buddy. And, like, I didn't see it when it happened, but, like, it all went 180, because I was like, he opens the oven and turns it on, and it's one of those gas ovens. I don't know if people realize that once upon a time there were gas ovens where there's flames in the top of the oven, because we're in this very much electric world now. I've seen that be used to like be like a temporary fireplace if you don't have a fireplace, so like to get warm kind of thing. Cause like there was dialogue about how cold it was outside and how you should go warm up kind of thing. And so I, I wasn't expecting it really until like I think subconsciously the dots were being connected, but that wasn't telling conscious me of like, yo, yo dark shit's gonna happen and he ends up trying to force this cat into the oven like a gas chamber and it's and it's so dark and he has a struggle with the cat and the cat gets free and gets out so we're good like the cat's safe but like you see like do sanders going down dark 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 pass and like regressing into his most terrible self and then and then of course we have the big pivotal moment where do sanders gets caught when he's wearing the uniform by a homeless man after Todd gets his grades up kind of thing. Like they kind of like come to the agreement that they'll never talk to each other ever again. And Deuce Hander also has this threat of I've written down 12 pages of our time together and it's in a safety deposit box, which is like blackmail back at Todd. And it's if he ever dies the bank is required with a representative of the IRS and everything to open the contents and go through the contents of the safety deposit box. And so it's like this like extra nail in the coffin. Which was a crazy power move. And I'm like, yep, okay, cool. Todd's reawakened this really, really horrible person who, you know, arguably was always horrible, but the most horrible parts of him are back to the surface. They kind of, not necessarily amicably, but they go their separate ways because Todd's done with this because he's also thrown away all of his blackmail material at this point because he hates being the one on the receiving end of manipulation. It's the I can dish it, but I can't take it sort of thing. Yeah, but like he also, because he's 16, doesn't realize he was the blackmailer in the first place because... He is so full of himself, whether that's ego or narcissism or his psychopathic tendencies. So this homeless man recognizes Dusander and follows him home. And Dusander invites him in to have a drink because he realizes this homeless man, who's arguably a little unhinged, probably from lots of years of being homeless. And he's a little mentally ill from probably being on the streets and clearly is like in some of the conversations, the ramblings, I guess, more so. He kind of just rambles and rambles, and it's, like, very eclectically hopping between stories, so it's really hard to, like, understand 
what he's saying and like he clearly has had struggles with like drugs and alcohol and it's clearly affected him mentally and stuff uh, but Deuce Sanders sees this as a potential threat of exposure and so he tries to kill him and he stabs him in the back and pushes him down the stairs but before he could like finish the job which he's intending he starts having a heart attack it's it's so intense and he calls Todd and he has Todd come over not informing him about anything but just that he has a is having a heart attack and that he better come over or his life is over because it's it's this power threat game and Todd comes over sees the crazy mess of broken glass and alcohol everywhere in the kitchen from the struggle that was being had Dusander locks him in the basement to finish the job and that to me was this like this is Nazi indoctrination like he is indoctrinating Todd to be the most terrible form of himself and making him confront it and like he's even saying inside dialogue like to himself of like I hope this boy's ready to face real action. I wonder if he's strong enough. Literally the the title of the film, like apt people. Like this is this is the pivotal moment. And this is probably like the big final act. And Todd gets down there and he's he's honestly just trying to get out because he's he's panicked, a panicked 16-year-old locked in some Nazi war criminal's basement with a guy who's half dead. And the homeless man wakes up and he's like, got a broken arm, got a knife in his back. He's bleeding from his face. He's not okay. And Todd freaks out. Initially, it's, it feels like panicked, but not self-defense. It's just Todd panicked because he's actually seeing something from his imagination in real life to him, uh, just manifested in reality. And he ends up, like, swinging a shovel at this guy's face, but then, like, fully kills him. He murders him. Goes down the dark, terrible, psychopathic path. He, he's he's honestly forced to by Dusander, but it's also... He's he's asked that question to Dusander, like, what did it feel like? Because he is so sickly obsessed with trying to understand what it's like to take the life out of someone. And so then he manages to clean up enough of the house before he calls the ambulance. Todd's dad comes over. It's like, I'm glad you, you're doing the right thing. We just cut to like, you're doing the right thing. And we see Dusander on a stretcher being taken to the hospital. And the father's none the wiser about anything as there's a dead homeless man in the basement. And Todd goes back later to essentially clean up the crime scene, bury the body and make it seem like nothing ever happened. And then we're back in the hospital visiting Dusander one last time. And he's going to fully recover because the operation was a success. The doctors say he's got 20 more years of life as Arthur Denker, his fake name. And so Todd leaves him after he falls asleep. And like this is kind of like the last time they're going to ever cross paths because Todd's like, I've did all the terrible things. He also burned all evidence of like, uh, Nazi memorabilia that he's gotten for Dusander. So completely covering up any sense of their relationship. Um, 
but also presses further. Like you didn't give me the key to the safety deposit box. Like we're done. I've thrown thrown away my evidence. Where's yours? And Deuce Ander comes clean that he never had any. He lied to him, and that just shows peak manipulation and how evil he is. And and honestly, further how evil the Nazi Party is. But then the ending is so fantastically well done because karma karma strikes to Sanders' bedside neighbor is a, a Jewish survivor from the Holocaust and recognizes him. Which was such a sweet, uh, like satisfying moment. But also heart-wrenching at the same time because you see him come face-to-face with a demon who we've, we find out later through the LAPD, FBI, and um, uh, Jerusalem uh, Commission Committee that hunts down Nazi war criminals, that uh, this man's children were killed at a concentration camp at Patton. It's so accurate in how he, this man, races out as much as he can for someone who's clearly not very mobile at his age and whatever health condition he's in race out to try to find help because he's seen a demon from his past, a monster, a true monster return. And and the way he just collapses into a nurse's arms and cries, it, it hits so deep. We then get this like really tense last 15 minutes, if that, of the movie. It was literally the final moments, which was crazy. Uh, of an investigation being happened, the FBI... And this this guy from Jerusalem who's hunting these Nazi war criminals that are unaccounted for visit Todd to interview him because they have questions about this letter that was this made up fabrication of a lie that supposedly was in German, but like Todd doesn't speak German and they're like, so you don't know what it said or anything like we, we really want information. It's really interesting that the guy from Jerusalem questions Todd's motives like he's on the tip of having something but ends up dismissing it because everyone else dismisses it and it's really interesting the conversation he has in the car with the fbi agent of like what what did you do when you were a kid and he's like oh i i went to movies what did you do i was like i chased girls now i chase old men and it's just so poignant because todd visited this old man to read letters like that's that's the cover that he's hiding under to read letters and books to him. And then we get this tense back and forth of Todd's guidance counselor shows up because it's all over the news of what Nazi war criminal has been found because the guidance counselor gets confused because he runs into Todd and his parents at the graduation and learns from his parents that his grandfather's been in a wheelchair for several years and he just starts questioning like what and then he sees the newspapers of this Nazi war criminal and he's just like this is not okay and he confronts he he goes to speak to Todd's parents because like clearly something's wrong and he he has the good sense of like Todd's not okay something is wrong with Todd but instead he runs into Todd but while this is happening we, we cut back and forth between this confrontation with Todd and his guidance counselor and Dusander trying to get out of being 
committed to trial because he it is the one thing he's he has said throughout this movie that like it it would be better currently to die than be found guilty of the crimes i've committed which is really interesting in that sense and and it, it makes me wonder if it's just because of the publicity the tarnishing of reputation and living your last months or years of going through that trial process of having your name slandered and everything like that for something you did in, in your past. But like, honestly, it's horrific what he did in his past. So whether whether or not that's equal justice or not, that that's up to you. I have very good conversations with my mom sometimes about going back and forth about our stances on the death penalty. And one thing that we have in common is that we both believe that for some people, death is too good. And I would say that this is a situation where death is too good for Dusander. And I think that for me, I interpreted all of that, all of what he was saying with all of that is like, it's better to be dead than found guilty at this point is an understanding of him thinking the same thing, just like from obviously a more narcissistic perspective of like it is easier for me to die than have to live my the rest of my life out like with people knowing what I did but also all the things that come with that I think it's very clear he doesn't actually regret any of the things that he's done um it's it's he's going to regret the consequences of his own actions when found out so do standard then is is trying to find a way to essentially kill himself and so he realizes you know his protective duty of cops outside his hospital room are distracted with nurses so it's very like he's an old man we don't have to worry about him but that gives him the opportunity to essentially breathe oxygen into his iv line to stop his heart which is kind of like crazy to have like the self willpower to do that because like I can't imagine that kind of like heart attack to happen because that's just so disturbing. Yeah, so this is one of those things where I actually had to like pause the television and get up and walk away because as I think I've mentioned in previous episodes like with like needles and blood and medical things, this is one of those things that makes my skin crawl like I feel like when I watch stuff like this which you wouldn't think is you know super common in media like seeing air get put into like IVs and things like that I have a horrible phobia of like air getting injected like and and things getting fucked up so this wrecked me part of his what like commitment I would say to to following through with with that was hearing those the neo-nazis outside in the hotel and i felt like that particular scene i was like damn this could be 2023 because that for me was somehow just like even more powerful than all of the other like stuff like todd like todd is a todd is a 16 year old child and He's not well and he needs help. Dusander is a despicable war criminal human being, if that demon, like whatever, and like did all of those things at the time. And then again, kind of like what you were saying, that there there had been a generation of distance between 
the Holocaust and when this movie was set in the in the eighties, mid eighties, like so then to include the scene of those neo Nazis outside of the hospital in support of Dusander basically was it was its own it was its own horror. That helps the movie kind of be timeless because it's it's still so accurate of yeah, exactly everything you just said of people who don't have an intimate understanding of the past and can be whether or not it's manipulated or convinced or persuaded that what horrible acts of violence and cruelty against humans could be okay and accepted is so dark and so real even to this day especially in uh, the political climate around the world even not just in the U.S., but it is also very a uniquely American story at its core, this film. And so during Dusander trying to kill himself, Todd is in this confrontation with his guidance counselor, and he essentially, it's, it's so beautifully done in the editing of the back and forth of Dusander starting to convulse and die, and Todd losing his humanity, his soul, and being corrupted to the point, like essentially being inhabited by Dusander is what it feels like of a darkness. I also totally got that. And it was so, it's so brilliantly done and disturbing. You leave this movie just feeling uneasy and disturbed. And that's the point because it's a very... It feels like a very real story that could happen. Well, and even we we come full circle, like during that whole hospital scene, and when he get uh, Todd gets confronted by the guidance counselor, Todd turns around and blackmails the guidance counselor because he basically threatens him to that he's like been sexually assaulting him or like making sexual advances like at him. So we we go we we start right back at where we started at the beginning of the film basically and so to have that and then that moment of feeling like Dusander has kind of inhabited Todd was it was like shit like there was no hope and then and then the movie ends on the haunting image of Dusander's lifeless face as it like slowly like zooms in a tiny 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 bit with the score swelling dark movie dark movie it is a lot. It is a lot. I highly recommend it, but it is like probably a lot of trigger warning for a lot of people when it comes to very deep emotional stuff and stuff dealing with the Holocaust and loss of life. But it's also, I, I came across uh, Brian Singer talking about this movie. I think when it was, when he was like on the press tour for when it was coming out, he said it wasn't about fascism or national socialism. It was about cruelty and the ability to do awful deeds, to live with them, and be empowered by them. And it's just, yeah, that is that is what this movie is about. Very cool thing I did also read. Uh, Ryan Singer previewed this movie at the Museum of Tolerance's L.A. Holocaust Center um, to get feedback from rabbis and others uh, when referencing the Holocaust, and they all gave him a, a positive response and how he treated that material. 
which is like i i felt that i felt that like i i feel like he wasn't trying to misconstrue anything or make anything like exploitative but but even so like even even if you don't have those intentions it's still possible to wind up with those outcomes so i'm glad that the work was done too that was actually a question i had was like what that response was like so i'm glad that the work was done to like figure that out prior to like launch i feel like we've only been talking surface level about this movie but like i feel like we've dove in a lot as well because it's this movie is a lot yeah i there's a there's i feel like it's so easy to fall into a deep dive of the concepts at large um but i feel like i feel like we accurately covered just kind of the the film and the nuances related to the film but there is there's so much more that could be said and flushed out and definitely we could do a whole episode just on this film easily so yeah if you if you want that we can we can do that maybe it's a live stream happy to go deeper with it yeah talk more directly to people who've seen it and hear opinions and stuff that way well sorry to get to the super super darkness of this episode but if if you don't have anything else it's been a it's been a long one but they were two really good i mean it's stephen king the two two solid solid stories to talk about as much as people want to be like, oh, Stephen King is like the same old, same old, you can dive into his work, especially any old film adaptation. Maybe not some of the more comical ones of like the 90s kind of thing, but these two specifically, like you could stay surface level so easily, but there, if you dig a little deeper, there's lots to talk about. Next up, we just got some go-to Halloween movies, you know, just kind of realizing that this episode got dark we're like let's just make the last episode of october just kind of like whatever maybe a little fun maybe just a little cliche uh so my movie for next week uh is gonna be beetlejuice um that is my go-to i will watch it multiple times uh a halloween season i've already watched it once this october and it's only the fifth so uh maybe i shouldn't say the date but whatever (laughs) uh i've already watched it once this october so um it will easily be watched probably like two or three more times uh without a doubt it's a great movie i love it love it and then the movie i chose was good old scream from 1996 og scream let's be clear because whenever it's just like people want like a scary movie kind of thing but don't want like too dark because you know you get to those group parties and people are like oh i'm gonna throw on this like really really dark movie with a bunch of gore and stuff i'm like no just put on scream like scream is like exactly (laughs) it's lighthearted enough but like still dives deep and it's great i'm excited to talk about those with you next week and uh yeah thank you guys for listening to resonant reels like review subscribe find us on all the things we're on all streaming platforms I've been Adam. And I've been Chandler. And yeah, we'll see you next week.